So as I mentioned earlier, we're going to hear from three different texts of Scripture today, uh, and there is a very clear common thread in these three passages, and it is this. God changes things, and it gives God a great delight to change things. Things like people's names, for example. In our Old Testament reading, God changed Abram's name to Abraham and Sarai's name to Sarah. The meaning of their name changed in a very significant way. Abram means exalted father, in somebody you're supposed to give a lot of respect to. But Abraham, add an H, means the father of a multitude. This is significant for a guy that's only had one kid and not with his wife. Father of a multitude is the name of this 99-year-old man, according to God. And Sarai, her name goes from meaning princess to meaning a source of nations and kings. Also, in her case, add an H. This name change is a sign that the promises God makes are going to change things, not just for this couple, but for all of humanity and history. When God makes a promise or a covenant, which is a special kind of promise, a covenant being a promise to stick with someone no matter what, when God makes that kind of promise, something surprising happens. Do you remember Abraham's reaction at the end of the passage we read earlier, when he contemplates the idea of a hundred-year-old man becoming a father and a 90-year-old woman becoming a mother. I mean, doesn't that sound like the most horrifying thing ever? <laughs> he is surprised, yes, but the Bible says he laughs. Certainly he laughs in disbelief. How could this ever happen? But he also laughs uh, in joyful surprise. Because God has been promising that he is going to be a great exalted father for decades and decades and decades. And a few chapters later in Genesis, when their geriatric ward is transformed into a maternity ward. Does anybody who's been to Sunday school remember the name of their miracle baby? Isaac. Isaac is a name with a special meaning as well. It means, it's the Hebrew word for laughter. When God makes promises and then follows through and does gracious, amazing things, it elicits joy and laughter. Oh, my. <laughs> so God is in the name-changing business. And I offer you this question at the beginning of today's sermon. We'll come back to it. If you've been walking with God for a while, somewhere along the way, has God changed your name? Or a similar version of the same question. Is God maybe in process of changing something about you? Is God changing your name? Our main scripture reading is going to come from Mark chapter 8 today. It also involves a name change. A more difficult one, however. Mark 8 says this. On the way, Jesus asked his disciples, Now who do people say I am? His disciples replied, some say John the Baptist. Others are saying Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. Now the thing that John the Baptist, Elijah, and the prophets of old all have in common is that they're dead. Isn't it curious that when word on the street got out about who this young rabbi from Nazareth was, 
And people ask, who really is this guy? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth? Who is he? The answer is some great person who has already died and come back to life. Like, that's, that's the best contemporary society was coming up with. John the Baptist, recently killed by King Herod. Elijah, dead and gone for 500 years. Or the prophets of old. But what about you? Jesus asked his disciples. What about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, You are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Peter has one of his finest moments here as Jesus' disciple. He is the first one to apparently really get it and understand in his heart of hearts who his teacher, the master Jesus, really is. He blurts out, you're the Messiah, the chosen one, the savior of the people of God. This is a watershed moment in the Gospels. No one has seen this. No human being has seen this so clearly. Uh, it's a leap of faith for Peter and the disciples. I mean, it's, it's like the heavens open, the angels sing. It's, everything's right for a moment. Maybe this is why, seeing this maybe capacity for some clarity, uh, that Jesus called and chose a fisherman named Simon. This was Peter's name originally, his given name, a Simon. And when Jesus called him and chose him, he said, Simon, you will now be called Cephas. It's an Aramaic name, the uh, mother tongue of Jesus' disciples. Cephas means the rock. When he translates Cephas into Greek, it's Petros, which means the rock. No cheating, you've heard this already. <laughs> and if you, when you translate Petros into English, it's Peter, which means... The Rock. Not Dwayne The Rock Johnson, just The Rock. So this kind of faith that Peter expresses, this kind of clarity about who Jesus is, that is the rock on which the church will be built. Okay? It's not Peter. It's not him as a human being. It's not his flesh and blood. It is the reality that he confesses here, that is the rock on which the church is built. However, perhaps as a signal that not everything is quite right yet, Jesus' response, did you notice this, to this watershed moment in the Gospels? Jesus says, hey, let's just keep that between us. Let's not tell too many people about this yet. It's not my time. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man, Jesus' preferred term for the Messiah, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed, and then after three days to rise up again. And he spoke to them plainly about this. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Well, well, well. The book of Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. It's a very sh brief, concise, direct book. There are three times in the book of Mark. This is the only thing that gets repeated ever in the book of Mark. Three times in the book of Mark where Jesus speaks very plainly about what the role of the Messiah is, what he has come to do. This is the first time. Could Jesus be more clear? I am here, and I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer I am going to die, 
and on the third day I am going to rise from the dead. Jesus understands what the job description of Savior of the world is all about. He embraces it. He could not be more clear. He knows where he's going. But Peter, this is the first time Peter has heard this. There's two more repetitions coming, okay? But Peter is, he's put out. He is flummoxed by what Jesus says here. What? Where in our picture of reality here of you saving the nation is suffering and rejection and death? Like that is not the way to bring a new political order. So Peter takes it upon himself to tap Jesus on the shoulder, take him to the side, and tell him what's what. Don't you love this? I mean, it's so beautifully human. One of Jesus' closest guys after the Lord gives them the clearest directions of what his life is all about, gives him a talking to on the side. What happens next? There is a new name for Peter. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Yeah. Simon, called Cephas, called Peter, now gets a short-term new name from Jesus himself, and his name is Satan. From a really good high to a deep, deep low, right? And Jesus is there with Peter for all of it. What is going on here? There is no sterner rebuke in all of the Gospels than what comes out of Jesus' mouth right here. I believe this is because what Peter tried to uh, talk to Jesus about, you don't have to suffer. You don't have to be rejected. You don't have to die. This was a temptation, an idea, a thought that Jesus was already deeply, intimately, personally in touch with. When Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and Satan himself, the prince of demons, laid temptations before him, no doubt this was at the top of the list. You don't have to suffer. You can still be the king without going through all that. We know on Jesus' last night when he was praying in the garden, anxious to the point of sweating great drops of blood, his prayer still at that final hour was, Oh God, if you can take this cup from me, please. Jesus understood this temptation. Might there be another way that is not going to hurt all the way to blood and bone? And when Peter holds it out in front of him, Jesus will have none of it. There are two ways in this passage to get behind Jesus, okay? (laughs) This is way number one. And Jesus says... If you're not willing to really walk with me, if you're not willing to go every step of the way and embrace what being with me is all about, get out of the way and get behind me. Could that be more clear? Jesus will not be hindered in doing God's work. But there's another way to get behind Jesus. He's about to invite us into it, which is, to let him go first and to walk in his footsteps 
and to let him lead the way and to be his, his student, his disciple, his supporter, to literally get behind him in that way. Here's what the gospel says next. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus is saying this, if you want to get behind me in the right way as my disciple, there is something guaranteed in store for you. Because if your master carries a cross, you as a follower and a disciple, you will have a cross. Now sometimes, I think most of the time, we get this business about what actually is our cross to carry quite wrong. We speak of if an accident or incident or sickness or difficult job change comes upon us, we speak of that like, that's your cross to bear right now. Or your sister is a real jerk. What a cross to bear. None of those things probably are crosses in and of themselves. A cross is not just something that troubles you, that's hard, that's rough, that takes some persistence and patience to push through. A cross, by definition, comes into your life as a cost that you pay because you are following Jesus. Okay? It's not the trouble that comes on us just because the universe is broken and full of sin and things happen. Right? It's the stuff that happens directly, precisely because you are walking with Jesus that something hard or painful comes in your life. So, for example, if you have a job and you lose your job because of your Christian commitment or because your Christian commitment calls you to a level of honesty or clarity that costs you your job, that is a cross. Like, you are directly suffering for being a follower of Jesus Christ. If you are in a romantic relationship and your commitment to Jesus Christ as you draw appropriate borders in your life and the person you're having a relationship with you thinks you're insane and it costs you that relationship, like that grief, that breakage, that is part of your cross. When you follow Jesus and you get coming back to you, misunderstanding, payback, humiliation, all of that, that is your cross. Do you have one sitting here today? Is there some trouble that is specifically in your life today because it's clear to people around you that you follow the Lord Jesus and they don't really get it? Jesus assumes that you are going to have one if you're following him. And it, this is a weighty word, it should give you pause about your own discipleship if you can't think of anything that's costing you specifically because you love Jesus and you're committed to him. 
I mean, it's easy for people like us. Come to this church on Sunday. I mean, there's a Christian school nearby. You can start your own business and hire a bunch of nice Christian employees to work with you. I mean, you could go for weeks or months, especially if you order your food, groceries on Amazon. I mean, with like out rubbing shoulders in any kind of significant way with someone who doesn't share the same course spiritual commitments that you share. And if that's your life, I think Jesus is saying, you need to get out more. You need to spend significant time with people who like, may not get this. Or maybe it's a challenge just to go on record with the people that you're already with. So our congregation has uh, th- more than 300 people who have officially committed during the season of Lent to fast in some way on Wednesdays and to be more deliberate about feasting and celebrating on Sundays. I mean, if you work with some other people and if you're fasting from technology or if you're fasting from food, like at some point people will notice and ask you what's up. And it would be great for you to be able to give some kind of representation about why you're doing that. Well, I prefer focusing on Jesus so much that I'm actually putting other things I prefer aside one day a week just for this season. What might your roommate or coworker say if you came out with that? I actually prefer spiritual things over lunch. I mean, instead of lunch. In this passage, uh, Jesus uses the same Greek word four times. It is not reflected in English. Sometimes it's translated life. Sometimes it's translated soul. The Greek word is suke, from which we get the English word psyche. Jesus does not mean psyche in the Freudian way. Jesus means psyche in the way of you have your biological life. It's great. You have your deep down eternal core existence. That is what your psyche is in in Greek. Your, Your soul, your spirit. And Jesus says whoever wants to save their psyche, their deep down life, has to lose it. And whoever loses their psyche for me and the gospel will actually save it. He continues, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their psyche, their essence? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their psyche, their soul, their essence? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes back in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Do you see how important it is to Jesus that we are proud of our association with him, down to our core, psyche, soul, spirit level? I mean, it matters so much that Jesus says, for those who are not proud of this association, for those who are not willing to count the cost in this life, I'll be ignoring them later. But for those who are proud of this association, who pay the price, I am going to be so proud of our eternal association. And did you catch who is super proud of their connection with Jesus? Who's coming back with Jesus? All his holy angels with him. Angels. Part of their job description is to worship around the throne of God and sing and praise day and night. Part of their job description is to be the messengers of God. 
the message bearers. Part of their job description will be uh, to be the welcome party that comes with Jesus when he returns to planet Earth. And the word holy characterizes their pride and association with Jesus. Now this word, holy, is a significant one. When we spoke of Abraham and Sarah, notice that both of their names got a bonus H, right? Uh, it's an H in Hebrew. The letter is hey. It has a little more in it than our English H does. Um, it's my favorite Hebrew letter. It's like the letter of life. Like you can really he- hear the breath of life in it. I also think, all things being equal, it seems to be God's favorite letter. The main name for God in the Old Testament is Yahweh. Double H. When Moses asks at the burning bush what he should say God's name is to the people of Israel when he's going to go down to Egypt and talk to Pharaoh, God says, Esher, Esher, Esher. There's like seven H's in it, all right? It's like, it's God's favorite letter. When he gives people new names, he emblazes an H over Abraham and Sarah, and I would humbly suggest that for those of us following Jesus these days, God wants to emblazon the letter H for holy over all of our lives as we commit to walking and following with Jesus. God's goal is to not make us all Olympians or super athletes, God's goal is not to make us all super talented musicians, as wonderful as musicians are. God's goal for us is to make his people holy. Do you have a sense that the trajectory of your life is going according to this discipleship script of being made more holy? That the highs and lows, that the good and bad, that the thick and thin, that Jesus himself is gathering all of that together to make you more holy. Our final reading is from Romans chapter 4. It's going to tie this all together. As it is written, God says, I have made you a father of many nations. Abraham, with an H, is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Okay, Abraham is the father of faith. This is faith, believing that God gives life to the dead, brings kids from a 100-year-old and a 90-year-old, and brings things into being, holiness, in those that do not have it. And yet, Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do exactly what he had promised. What did he promise them? Again, this insane thing to give a baby to a hundred-year-old man and change the world in history through him. This is why, quote, it was credited to him, Abraham, as righteousness, Now these words, it was credited to him, were written not only for him alone, but also for us. Pay attention. This is for us here today, credited to him as righteousness, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. 
He was delivered over to death for our sins and then was raised to life for our justification, for our holiness. God wants to make us holy. How is it going to happen? To believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. That is what makes the difference. I just realized, did none of that passage show up on the screen? Hey, there it is. I'm super excited about it. <laughs> want you to hear it and see it. Uh, how does holiness happen? By getting behind Jesus. To believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, that is what is going to make the difference. To believe in the crazy, laughter-inducing promises of God, the God of gracious, impossible surprises, that is what is going to make the difference. And the craziest thing you could say 2,000 years ago and the craziest thing that you can say to a contemporary American is, I believe that dead people come back to life. Anybody else? I mean, that is at the core of what we believe, that someone who is dead and gone and bled and finished, the breath of life snuffed out, not hypnotized, not down for the count, dead, that God brings the dead back to life, Jesus first. The rest of us, when we get behind Jesus, it's crazy. I dare you to tell people this in the grocery store. And look at the way they live. I believe dead people come back to life. In fact, I'm basing my entire life on this. What I do on Wednesday, it's because dead people come back to life. I go to church every Sunday because dead people come back to life. <laughs> when we take this in, and just like Peter couldn't take it in, it took him the rest of his life to take... It takes an entire lifetime and all eternity to take in the glory of this idea. Oh. God wants to change our names. God wants to emblazon the H of holiness as the gift of Jesus Christ, as a banner over your life. So when I came into this world, uh, my parents gave me the name Greg. Uh, even as a very small child, this disappointed me. I always wanted to be a Gregory... I am not a Gregory, I am only a Greg. Okay, my mom tried to compensate by this, for this by giving me extra G's. So I have three G's in Greg. Thank you, mom. Okay, so came from a large family. All of us had various nicknames through childhood. Uh, one of my nicknames, uh, we'll just keep this here for today. Okay, uh, one of my nicknames was... Muffin. Isn't that sweet? Very cute. Uh, I confess that my, uh, my physiology as a young child very much merited the name Muffin. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so I think my dad started calling me this around age two or three. I do remember, maybe at age four, finding out that the word Gregory, the name Gregory or Greg, means uh, to be watchful or alert, or awake. I remember uh, running around my house, like, trying to be super alert and watch everything, and told my siblings I was never going to sleep again because my name meant I was going to be alert forever. So uh, fast forward a little bit. I'm, like, 10 years old, uh, playing Little League. 
10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, and 12-year-olds, okay? I am pitching a game, and uh, my, my dad was a really awesome pitcher. Uh, he played semi-professional baseball. He was drafted by the Cubs at one point. Uh, he taught me how to pitch reasonably well, okay, as a kid. I could pitch a little bit. I'm pitching this game. I strike out the first nine kids in this game, okay? As a 10-year-old, I know, like props, come on. Ninth kid, like, you know, kid strikes out, and my dad calls from the Little League stands, way to go, muffin! (laughs) Defining moments, you know? So uh, my dad liked to tell the story. I marched directly off the field, through the dugout, into the stands, pointed a finger at him and said, don't you ever call me that again! And he didn't, although he loved to tell the story. (laughs) Mm. So sometimes we can be renamed in an embarrassing or difficult or awkward way, okay? That's not the kind of renaming I'm talking about. Like, something like what I just told is going to happen for everybody. Someone's going to give you some jerk nickname at some point or call you something. As you can hear a little bit in my story in the way I conducted myself as a 10-year-old, Here's the deeper part. A a worser part of my character, by nature, is that I'm a show-off, okay? As the youngest kid in a family, I did everything I could to get some attention, to get people to notice me. It gets pretty deep down in there. I'm a recovering show-off. I'm not all the way there yet. Look, I stand in front of hundreds of people every Sunday. What are the chances? However, Because I've been following Jesus for a while. Because I have been, Lord willing, at important times in my own life, open to the humility and wrecking that the gospel does to our sinful nature. God is slowly transforming me from a show-off into a shepherd. That's why I stand in front of you as a pastor today. Uh... It is much deeper in my heart that we as a community and that we as individuals uh, are walking closer and more faithfully with Jesus himself. That gives me more uh, satisfaction, joy, the right kind of pleasure than public speaking arrangements. I hope you can hear this in my voice. I hope you see this in my eyes right now. I hope to some degree you can experience this through my life. What matters most is our walk of discipleship and being renamed and claimed and changed along the way because we are behind and with every step of the way, Jesus himself. So I asked this question before. Has God changed your name? Is God doing something in the events, the timing, the difficult circumstances of your life, even today, where you can, you can feel yourself moving? You can feel Jesus pulling and pushing you in some new direction because of your commitment to him. Church, this is what it's all about. It's not about one victory after another. It's not having... The greatest life any American ever had. It's about walking with Jesus every step of the way. Amen. Will you pray with me?
Oh God, we're so thankful that uh, you have spoken some incredible surprises and graces into human history. Nothing forced you to do that. Nothing compelled you to do that. Only uh, the love that you have for your people in the human race. God, thank you for what you did in Abraham and Sarah's life. Thank you that you changed history. And thank you that you offer uh, to allow us to follow even today and that you won't leave us where we are, but that you'll be with us, that you'll rename us, that perhaps most miraculously of all, you'll make us holy and that you have the credibility to do that because you bring dead people to life. Oh, God, bring us life for Jesus' sake. And everybody said, amen.